So here's something to think about. If we take the four most recent governors of Massachusetts, that's Mitt Romney, Deval Patrick, Charlie Baker, Mara Healy, they don't share a party or a vision or a home state, but they all have one thing in common, a Harvard diploma. That means for the last 20 years straight, Massachusetts has been run by a Harvard alum. And it's not just the governors of Massachusetts. A Harvard diploma, that's something they share with Supreme Court justices, mayors, public servants, local and national. Their job is to make big decisions with big consequences. And from affirmative action to Harvard's expansion into Alston across the Charles River, quite a few of those decisions involve Harvard. What happens when you need to make tough decisions with competing parties, and one of them is the school that you once called home? Today, in the first of a three-part special commencement audio series brought to you by the Crimson, the Harvard alumni who run Massachusetts. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank So. My name is Sally Edwards, and I cover Cambridge education for the Harvard Crimson. Hey, I'm Jack Trapanick. I cover government relations for the Harvard Crimson. So we're here to talk about the large number of Harvard alumni that are among the ranks of Massachusetts's public servants. I wonder if you could talk us through a little bit, historically, what has Harvard's role been in Massachusetts public service? Harvard predates both the U.S. and Massachusetts as a state. It was founded in 1636, so early. Its development really tracks with the development of Massachusetts as a colony and then as a state. So if we can fast forward 100 years from its founding into, you know, the revolution and afterwards when America's founded, Harvard is actually written into the Massachusetts Constitution. It gets three separate articles, which establish various things about the university and, you know, longevity and importance of it, blah, 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 blah. Um, but the important thing is that the Board of Overseers, which is the second highest governing body of Harvard, is established not as an elected body as it is today, but rather as uh, this group that is composed of the highest offices in Massachusetts because of state law. The governor of Massachusetts was part of the Board of Overseers, so was the lieutenant governor, the president of the Senate, and the Speaker of the House on the state level. All those people were on the Board of Overseers of Harvard. So there was a deep and historical link between Harvard and the state that not just like, oh, Harvard happens to fill all these like state-level positions. No, it's literally that the state and Harvard are like completely bound together. Exactly. It's one big symbiotic relationship. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although it's been so prevalent in history, it's like by no means a relic of the past. I think something that Jack found during our reporting was that just about 40% of Massachusetts governors are Harvard alumni. Out of the 72 governors of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, 29 of those individuals have been Harvard alumni. At the same time, it's very much something that we're seeing within our politics today, within the state. Within the past 20 years, four of the governors of Massachusetts have been Harvard alumni. That's Mitt Romney, that's Deval Patrick, that's uh, Mara Haley, the current governor, and that's Charlie Baker. And we see just that institutional connection that persists even today, mm -hmm. you know. And so there's just been this historical continuity that's been really important and really interesting to trace because, you know, we see that back in 1636 and we see that in 2023. Of course. So I wonder then how this symbiotic relationship, Sally, as mm. you were saying, plays out in terms of really important decisions that concern not just the university, but Boston, the Boston area and Massachusetts writ large. Are there any examples from, you know, recent history that we can point to? 
you know, the uh, leaders of both Boston and Cambridge, Michelle Wu and Yan Huang, mm. the city manager of Cambridge, are both Harvard alumni. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that some of the modern day problems and issues that we're dealing with within the you know Boston area, you know, the first one that obviously comes to mind is the whole Austin debate within mm-hmm. Harvard. So in the late 80s, early 90s, Harvard began to acquire some of the land over the Charles River in the Alston area. They purchased this land through a separate agent so that the identity of the university wasn't officially disclosed in the proceedings. Some people speculated that this was for financial reasons because, you know, if the wealthiest university in the world was interested in property and you were able to trace that name, then, of course, you know, price would go up like crazy. So that was you know, speculation around why this was done. But at the end of the day, Harvard purchased 52.6 acres of land in the Alston area for $88 million through a separate agent, which, you know, as this came out, it was a real point of frustration for the community because they felt like Harvard wasn't being straightforward, Harvard wasn't being honest. And again, while these were kind of the sentiments going around in the community, there were definitely lots of layers to the story. But at the same time, that kind of began to grow the tensions between the relationship of the Alston community and of Harvard University. And when that came out, that they were doing this anonymously, um, that, you know, really caused a big controversy both within the Cambridge and the Alston communities. So, you know, moving forward, as Harvard continued to expand into Alston, that was all done, you know, obviously with their institutional name attached to their actions. And at the end of the day, they ended up amassing around 200 acres of land within the Alston area. So someone that we talked to for this piece was Brian P. Golden, class of 1987, who was a state representative in Massachusetts in the Alston area. Um, His district also included Harvard. And then after that, he was a director of the Boston Planning and Development Agency, which was then named the Boston Redevelopment Authority from 2014 to 2022, a crucial period in the university's push to develop its enterprise research campus in Alston and overall just increase its institutional presence in the area. We learned in our conversation with Mr. Golden that Harvard does have a presence within, you know, Massachusetts state government and the legislature as we expected because he his district that he represented as a state senator included Harvard. So the way he approached it is Harvard is an economically and, you know, academically very influential organization within the area. But at the end of the day, it is also a, fundamentally a constituent of, um, you know, the district that he represents. And therefore, he was like, I owe it to the university, not as an alumni, but as a public servant to listen to them in good faith. So after he finished his tenure as state representative, he went on to become the director of the Boston Planning and Development Agency, which was then named the Boston Redevelopment Authority. Um, And he explained that in this position, he was directly and more constantly lobbied by the university, simply because a lot of the day-to-day activities of the university, you know, the way they want to expand, the way they want to grow, requires so much constant attention from the BPDA. The way he explained it is, uh, Mr. Golden said, did Harvard lobby me as a state rep and as BPDA director? Oh, absolutely. But he continued and he said it had legitimate positions and they advocated those positions and their prerogatives. So he was clear that he did not discern any feeling that, oh, they're specifically targeting me. He said that Harvard, quote, absolutely, end quote, engaged with him more in his role as a BPDA director simply because quote, the day-to-day planning and development issues that dictates Harvard's future are more often primarily addressed, not exclusively, but primarily addressed at the Boston Planning and Development Agency. And so they got constant communication going into there. 
end quote. He said, quote, it was everything Sally, end quote. They had big ambitions for a lot of the development in Alston, but overall just within their president in the Boston metro area, kind of advocating for their positions on a variety of different issues and not just Alston. You know, they have a million, you know, outreach programs. You know, they have things that they lobby for on the national level, on the local and state level. Like, they have a huge presence. And that really continued to be a big source of tension and contention even today. I think that's something that we see a lot of students on campus talking about as a big issue that we see within the Harvard organization. It's really important for us to, you know, point out the fact that while all this controversy is going on in terms of Harvard expansions, Harvard increasing its presence in Boston, it already has this standing presence within Boston local government itself. All interactions between Harvard and Alston now, at least between longer standing community activists, no matter how hard they try, they, you know, everyone is coming at this with the knowledge of what they did in the 90s. And so there's a foundation of mistrust. Looking at these people who come from Harvard and now are responsible for areas that contain Harvard, and Harvard is very actively engaging with communities, not always in positive ways, according to communities like Olson themselves. So it's like, okay, how do we square the fact that it's Harvard alums who are dealing with their presence, but Harvard is just one of many competing interests in some of these issues. For sure. I wonder then for Harvard alumni in the Supreme Court, for example, whose decisions reverberate nationally, I'm thinking to Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, who had extensive involvement with the university. Are there any attempts to ensure that even potential conflicts of interest won't happen? So I think this serves as a really good example of what happens when these two things come into the most direct conflict possible. So Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson herself, uh, at the time that she was being not just nominated, but confirmed during these confirmation hearings, which were very contentious, she was grilled by Republicans like Ted Cruz about her more present affiliations to Harvard. You know, not only did she go to the school, which frankly is quite common for people who go into the Supreme Court, uh, but specifically she was serving a term on the Board of Overseers, which is the second highest governing body of Harvard, as we discussed earlier. Um, And not only that, she now has a daughter at Harvard herself. So she has some very present connections to the school, more than simply coming from it. So in those situations, it comes to the point where it's just a direct conflict of interest and recusals happen. So in this case in particular, Katanji Brown-Jackson recused herself. So do similar recusals happen at the local level too? An adjunct lecturer at the Kennedy School, he himself was recently appointed some MBTA board, but he's still an adjunct lecturer. He's on Harvard's payroll. He had to write a letter to the general counsel of the T and say, I can't be doing any work involved with West Station, which is this planned station in Alston. Harvard is helping fund the project that's going to make it possible. At that point, besides alumni themselves, people who have current or ongoing connections, it just reaches the level of recusal. And we talked with the state rep, David LaBeouf, who was one of the co-sponsors on a bill in the Massachusetts state legislature to penalize institutions who use legacy or donor considerations in the application process, uh, like they would find institutions who do that. And LaBeouf, he graduated from Harvard 2013, transferred in as a sophomore. He said that his affiliation to Harvard as a former student did not really factor into his decision to co-sponsor the bill. LaBeouf more cited his duty to his constituents and his loyalty to his Mm -hmm. districts above his loyalty to Harvard as his alma mater. Michelle Wu, for example, She went into Alston last year and was brokering a deal between Alston community residents and advocates 
and Harvard's trying to continue development. They have this enterprise research campus they're trying to start building with another swath of land. And I don't think there was ever a point in which people were like, you know, we want someone else. Michelle Wu isn't trustworthy. But of course, this is a consideration that she then has to take in mind. You know, when she's meeting between Alston and Harvard, she comes from Harvard. So she has to make sure there's no perception that she's preferencing her alma mater. We talked to one Kennedy School professor who'd have commented on the phenomenon and basically said, you know... There's like this extra layer of accountability that simply comes from that public knowledge and pressure. If they were seen as like doing anything that would favor the institution, their credibility would be challenged because it's Mm. such a widely known fact that they have ties to the university. So it sounds like the fact that Harvard alumni happen to go into local governance and become national leaders and decision makers that that's something inevitable for a university of Harvard's stature. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way Harvard frames a Harvard education when it comes to civic engagement that end up shaping this phenomenon. Harvard is known for its government programs. It's known for being the college that's going to produce some of the leaders, whether that's local, state, national, international. That's the expectation that Harvard students will leave Harvard, will leave Harvard Yard, and will go into the world and be the leaders of the next generation. Every night when I walk home from the Crimson up Plimpton Street to Mass Ave, and then right as you get there, you see this huge imposing gate with these iron bars and this, you know, red bricks on either side and this stone on the top. And there's an engraving in the daytime, the sun just hits it and you can see perfectly there's this engraving that says, enter to grow in wisdom. And you go through this gate through kind of the dark wig tunnel and then you come out on the other side and you're immediately transported from this like hustling and bustling Massachusetts ad this place to this suddenly it's just a very quiet place it's very calm you come up right next to this beautiful tree and then on the other side is Widener Library which is the university's largest collections of books it's the most imposing building that you've ever seen it's just this hallmark when you first come in you go and you sit on those steps and you take your picture with your class and then you graduate And you sit on those same steps with your diploma and your cap and gown and take your picture again. And it's such a hallmark of Harvard education. And so Dexter Gate really leads you right into that expectation that you're going to grow in wisdom. It leads you directly to the library of the college. And then if you turn right around and you walk back out into the world, you leave through Dexter Gate. And right above facing you is the other sentence of the inscription, which says, depart to serve thy country and thy kind. And so I think there is this expectation getting ready for graduation. The class of 2023, they're going to get their diplomas, but at the same time, they're going to be getting this mandate from the university and this weighty expectation that they're going to be going into the world, whether that the world is their city, their state, their nation, and they're going to be forces of leadership within their environment, becoming the mayors of Boston, the city managers of Cambridge, they're becoming governors, they're becoming state representatives and senators. But at the same time, they're carrying the weight of the institution of Harvard, and they will have always come from there and they're going to have to square the fact that they have this alma mater that's so imposing and so powerful within you know the state and the nation but at the same time they have this greater responsibility to their country to their constituents to the members of um, their district who voted for them in order to put this into this leadership position what we've really seen is that a lot of the time that's not a nice clean little story and you know country and kind don't always align well and I think when those two things come into conflict is where we really see okay how these individual alumni deal with them and even the story behind Dexter Gate itself the inscription is from a former university president 
Charles W. Eliot. And Charles didn't have to look very far for an example of serving country and kind. His father, Samuel, who also went to Harvard, was this absolute force in Massachusetts politics. He was um, a state representative. He was a mayor of Boston. He was a state senator. And then he went on to represent Massachusetts, actually, in the U.S. House of Representatives. But at the same time that he was serving as a state senator and as he was a member of Congress, he was simultaneously a treasurer at Harvard University. And still that this idea that there's this culture that, you know, you have an institutional loyalty to the government that you're serving, but at the same time you have an institutional loyalty to the university, which puts you in the position to serve in that government role. Thank you so much, Sally and Jack, for joining us to talk through how Harvard is an alma mater shapes so much of the world we live in. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Zoe. The producers of this episode were Haley E. Krasnikov, Julian J. Giordano, Marina Q., and Frank S. Zoe. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, This is News Talk.